Thank you, Tom, for that. Appreciate, appreciate that. Um, well, good morning. Good morning. Um, I just want to take a moment to just welcome all of you that are here in our student center online right now. Um, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm the senior pastor here at New Life. And um, before we get into the Word of God today, I wanted to just take a moment and celebrate something. And uh, <clears throat> you may remember if you've been around here for a few months, um, about seven months ago, we began a capital campaign that we called Heart for the House. And we launched it specifically to repave our parking lot, which is clearly in disrepair. Uh, you're like, yeah, I, I hit a pothole and lost a child today. Um, you know, um, it, it, it's needed. And uh, didn't have to convince anybody that, that it's needed. Uh, we kicked it off as a seven-month pledge back in February. It's like, okay, you know, we kind of divided it up into uh, parking spaces and said, so like, if you as a family commit to that and over a seven-month period. Well, so that was in February. And then in March, uh, COVID hit. And, um, you know, we, we were able to get some really cool pothole video commercials in for a couple weeks. And then, and then essentially for four months out of a seven-month capital campaign, we went completely remote, church, church online, preaching from, to an iPhone for four months. And um, most churches uh, would struggle during that time. And many churches have, have struggled during this pandemic and have even had to, to close their doors and all of that. Um, and, and kind of at least some of the expectation would be that, you know, maybe, maybe people would, would pull back um, some of those above and beyond, over and above giving that, um, that maybe they had committed to. But, but not you. No, you're weird. Um, <laughs> you guys just defy all uh, rationale and odds and things that, that people would think that people would do. Um, you all just continued, not only of your giving and tithes of, and offering, but um, many of you, particularly those that are watching online right now, have figured out how to give online. You know, maybe they were used to, to giving like a, you know, envelope and a plate uh, every, every week and now figured out how to give online and have just been dedicated and loyal to this house and um, honestly over the top inspiring and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart as your pastor that you just make it easy to pastor the best church um, on the planet and um, and you guys are amazing so let me give you a little bit of statistics or, or details here back in February you all had pledged to give $141,643 $141,643 towards the heart for the house campaign um, as of yesterday, we have received $137,402.50. Just in case you were like, ah, I'm not good with math, it's 97% of what was pledged back in February. That's just, that's just crazy. It doesn't even make sense. Most churches, even doing a capital campaign, never get 97% of what was pledged um, and, and during a pandemic, you all just go above and beyond, over and above, and, and, and give to um, this house. And um, I just want to thank you and celebrate that. Amen? Um, I want to give you a little bit of um, information. You might be wondering, okay, well, we gave. Well, what's going on with this parking lot? You know, um, so the 141000 is is still, uh, honestly, is still not enough to complete the job. Um, we went back to the... The pavers are kind of be like, okay, how could we, what could we do for a lesser amount of money? How can we kind of be creative with this thing? And uh, we got it down to just shy of like 300000 um, to be able to kind of like lower our costs to be able to do that. And we're kind of going back and forth and that kind of thing. But obviously, uh, we still need more to be able to close the gap. So we're looking into kind of dipping into um, our savings or doing some creative options in that. Um, and due to COVID, we... Uh, the paving company can't get to us in the fall. They have to wait until the spring. And so I just want you to know that we are planning in faith to move forward to finish the job this spring. And um, I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for um, just being so dedicated and loyal to this house. So 
moving forward, if, if you're like, oh man, I totally forgot about that Heart for the House thing, um, and you made that pledge and you want to finish that up over the next, over the next couple months, or maybe God puts it on your heart to help close the gap in some way, that's between, that's between you and him. But um, I encourage you to just respond in that. And um, I just want you to know that you're the best local church. It's my privilege to be able to serve you and, um, and to lead, lead this place. And um, I, I'm, just, I'm just blessed. So thank you. Amen? Amen. Cool. So we're in a sermon series going through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is, um, man, Peter is kind of no-holds-barred, gritty, in your face, not afraid to tackle the hard issues of life letter. And uh, if you've been here, if you're here right now, you made it through last week, which is a, a difficult message. It was a difficult word for and uh, this time that we're in right now. I think it's, it was definitely a now word for us. Doesn't mean that it was easy, but it's, but it's a word that God has for us. And so he just finished talking last week about how we respond as Christians to unjust human authority in our life. And today, Peter's going to be taking that same rationale, that same logic, that same idea, and applying it to how believers are to respond when they're married to imperfect people. Is there anybody in here that is married to an imperfect person? Sweetie, don't raise your hand. No, I, had to, I had to say sweetie, right? Because um, I think all of us are married to somebody imperfect or certainly your spouse is married to an imperfect person. And, and this is kind of what Peter is hunkering down in in 1 Peter 3. He's, he's talking about, first and foremost, okay, what, what are believers supposed to do when they're married to a spouse who is an unbeliever? What, what do I do when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, I, 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 I go to church, I'm, I believe in Jesus, and yet my spouse is an unbeliever? How do I, how do I deal with that? And Peter addresses that, and then, and then he gives marriage advice. To, to wives and to husbands. And so we're going to dig down into that. And so I just want to, I want to encourage you to buckle up. First Peter chapter 3, if you're in one of our in-person um, gatherings, or maybe you're just home, if you wouldn't mind standing with me to honor the reading of God's Word today, I would love that. Um, God's Word is, is so much greater than anything that, that, that I might have to say today. First Peter chapter 3, Starting in verse 1, we're going to read 1 through 7, because that's kind of the whole section that he um, focuses in on marriage. He said, wives, let me just, let me just warn you. Warn you. Um, there's going to be some words in here that you're, they're going to be like, I don't know if I like that word. Um, and uh, there's going to be some things that might offend your flesh today, so just be ready. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves. Huh, there's one. To your own husbands. So if any of them do not believe the word, that they may be won over by, without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what's right and you do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Why did I pick First Peter? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is profitable for life and godliness. Lord, I pray that uh, it would offend our flesh and encourage our spirit. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave this place the same, that we would be changed by the word of God today. We expect it. I expect nothing less than to be changed by your word. And so, God, we, we just pray that you would uh, have your word leap off of its pages. And um, I pray that we truly would have marriages that would be a model and, and a lighthouse to those that desperately need to see something of life. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. So, there is... Um, 
there's this relationship um, researcher, and uh, he's, not, he's not a Christian, I don't, I don't believe at least. Um, his name is uh, John Gottman. He's an author, and um, maybe some of you have, have read some of his studies or books, but he's done clinical research on couples, studies, over long periods of time, years, in which he was able to predict which couple would eventually divorce with over a 93% accuracy rate, which is pretty high, um, 93%. And uh, he determined that there were four factors that directly contribute to the demise of the relationship, to the, to the divorce. And he actually calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And he says that when there's a combination of these four that are, that are present and not dealt with in a marriage, then they almost guarantee the failure of the relationship. It's pretty significant, right? I mean, it at least whets my appetite to be like, what, what are these for? So if you don't take notes, you probably ought to. Number one, um, <laughs> number one, the first one, criticism. That's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Crit- criticism. Not, not, I don't mean like criticism in like voicing a complaint. I mean, criticism, the criticism that he's talking about is when you criticize um, and attack the personality or the character of your spouse. Um, let me give you kind of an, an, an understanding. So it's, it's like this. Um, it goes from, you know what, sweetie, <laughs> it really bothers me when we're late to things. And it moves from there to criticism, which sounds like this. You are a selfish jerk, and you never consider anyone other than yourself. See the difference there? You kind of, there's a slight difference. Did you catch it? There's like one of them is addressing the issue and the other one is <laughs> um, getting to the heart of someone's personality and their character. Um, the antidote to criticism is actually something that, that Katie and I, we've been married for, for over 20 years now. And when we were in premarital counseling, we came up with fighting rules. Did we not? Okay. She's here in the service, so... I'm a little nervous. Um, last service, I was just like, yeah, throw her under the bus. Yeah, murder. You know, it's just fine. Now she's here. I got to be honest with you. Okay, so we came up with fighting rules 20, over 21 years ago. We were, we were getting married. And one of them that we came up with that proved to be so, so, so much of a lifesaver was that when you argue, stay on topic. Don't live in the past. So what do I mean by that? I mean, like, in other words... Um, when, when you're arguing about something, uh, you're even in a heated argument about something, don't bring up everything else and, and say, well, and you do this every time you do this and all the time you do and you never and you should and you always and you're a selfish jerk because you didn't, right? And all of those things that just stay on the topic, discuss what's at hand and don't bring up every single thing and this is why and your mom and she did and oh, 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 oh this, it, goes, it goes really bad. And so it has saved us over 20 years uh, a ton of regret and um, over 20 years we can probably also remember times when we hit each other under the belt, you know, um, because when you have a rule like that, you know when somebody breaks it. And it hurts. I mean, if you're used to just kicking each other in the shins and punching each other in the groin, then you get it, right? But if, when you don't do that and somebody does that, you're like, whoa, was not expecting that, right? And so it hurts a little bit differently. And uh, so that was like one of our fighting rules, and it kind of is the antidote to this thing that we call criticism. The second one is defensiveness. Defensiveness. Um, this is when one or both partners in a relationship play the victim. And... Um, so rather than like accepting criticism and taking responsibility, you tell the partner that, well, everything that you're doing is, everything that I'm doing is completely fine and you are the problem. So if, you, if, you, if there's defensiveness in you in a relationship, then you kind of have this knack for like somebody comes to you, your, your partner comes to you with like a, a concern and you're able to turn it around and be like, not only is your concern stupid, but you are the problem and it's actually not me. 
I know nobody's ever dealt with these things. <clears throat> it's really quiet in here. Um, you know, it's so, so you've, you've, you've seen that or you dealt with that or maybe you struggle with that yourself. Um, I, I don't necessarily see that, that it, any of it's my problem. The antidote to this, and I've said this before, is like um, take responsibility to own 100% of your 10%. Because in reality, most of us, and given any um, hostile situations, only ever feel like we only actually are responsible for about 10% of the issue. It's usually 90% the other person. Can we all agree it's always 90% their, their issue? 10% fine. Essentially, the antidote to defensiveness is just committing to be like, I'm going to own 100% of my, of my 10%. I'm just going to accept that responsibility. I'm going to own it. I'm not going to act like it's only 10%. I'm going to own it like it's 100%, but it's only mine, 10%. I own 100% of that. That's the antidote to defensiveness. The third one is stonewalling. Stonewalling. This is when uh, one or both people in a relationship simply withdraw from any meaningful communication. We kind of maybe sometimes call it the silent treatment or you turn away you tune somebody out, you act like you're really super busy because you don't want to enter into any form of communication. And so you just, you just try to shut somebody down or you say things like, I am done talking to you. And that was three years ago, right? I mean, like, you're kind of in that place where you're just like, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't want to enter into any sort, of, any sort of communication. The antidote to stonewalling is, go figure, communication. So it's like, oh, never would have thought, right? It's essentially deciding like, okay, you're heated, I'm heated. We're not going to help ourselves right now. Let's take a break. And then, but we're committed to regathering our thoughts and our emotions. And we're, we're, we're committed to regathering and reengaging in the conversation. Communication. The fourth one is, uh, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse is, is Contempt contempt. Gottman says that this is the number one predictor of divorce, and it sounds like criticism on steroids, okay? It it is like, it it comes out in um, ridicule, mimicking, mocking, comes out as sarcasm, name-calling, eye-rolling. It's just contempt. It's destructive. It's defeating makes the other person feel belittled all the time. They can't win. The antidote to contempt is honor. Honor. Contempt is essentially when you expect the worst out of your spouse, and honor is when you encourage the best out of your spouse. And it's essentially what Peter's been talking about in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 3, honor. He uses different words. I mean, throughout this last week and this week, I mean, he talks words like submit and be considerate and respect. And, but, but the idea that he's driving home, the idea that he's really drilling down into is that as Christians, we are to be building a culture of honor in every area of our life. And so the virtue of honor. I mean, if you look in our world today, especially in our American society, it's, hmm, seems like a foreign concept to choose to honor people, treat everyone with, with respect. And my question is this, like, what if in a day where, where divisiveness and opposition and dishonor and, op- like, what if, where that rules the day, what if this word from Peter about honor would set us apart and make us weird and holy and different and not like the world around us. And just as this idea of honoring people applies to you and your citizen in in society, we talked about this last week, or or you in your workplace, like this, this idea of honoring applies to your spouse because if you should give proper honor to everyone, how much more should that apply to your spouse, right? And, and if you're not married today, well, as we get into this word, I just want to encourage you, um, you're going to be able to <laughs> learn sometimes from other people's mistakes and hopefully set yourself up for success in your future marriage, which would be a good thing. Amen? So let's dig into the scripture. 
Um, I want you to notice, first and foremost, we're just looking in verses 1 through 7, so keep your Bible open, your version app, whatever, you, whatever you've got, because I, I want you to see the words of Peter. He says in verse 1 and verse 7, kind of the same thing. In verse 1, he says, wives in the same way. And then he says in verse 7, husbands in the same way. Maybe your version says likewise, husbands, likewise, wives, likewise. It begs the question, likewise as what? Like in the same way as who? Like what, what, what are you referring to? And I want you to realize that Peter is essentially hearkening back to the, the chapter before in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he's essentially telling us your example to follow in all of these relationships is Jesus. So your example to follow in your marriage is is Jesus. In other words, don't just honor, don't just submit, don't just be considerate, don't just be respectful in your marriage for Pete's sake. Do it for God's sake. So, so this, is what, this is what Jesus does as an example for us to follow. I'm going to read it for you again. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, he says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, he kept his heart clean, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of being treated unjustly, even in the midst of being treated unjustly by imperfect people. He guarded his heart. Why? Because it's always about the heart. We talked about this last week. It is always about the heart. I want to make it about everybody else, and it's their fault. It's 90% their fault all the time, but it's always about the heart. Always about the heart. Continues. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. In other words, he refused to return evil for evil. So you want to say that about me? You want to call me that name? You want to mock me? You want to, you want to say that? I refuse to give you back what you gave me. That's exactly what Jesus did. He's like, I refuse to act in the same dishonorable manner that you are dishonoring me in. And he says, instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He, didn't, he, he did it for God's sake and for our good. What does that look like? He continues in verse 23, or 24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is what he did for you. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So capture this, Jesus, who is obviously a way better than you. He is way above you. He literally lowered himself to become a man, to come under us for our good. He leveraged his power. He le leveraged his position. He even leveraged his life for your good. That's what Peter's outlining here. And Peter is saying to us, I want to just set the stage for you today. He says, wives, husbands, be like Christ in your marriage. <laughs> That's not easy. And you may have already noticed, I'm sure the, the, the ladies in here noticed, that um, we got seven verses, right? I mean, verses one through six is for wives. It goes into detail, explanation, six verses for wives. Only one verse for husbands. Did you guys notice that? <laughs> one verse and a threat. I don't know if you caught that in verse 7. Because I think sometimes guys need to know, like, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. So, ladies, you guys get six verses. You get explanation, detail, all that kind of stuff. Guys are like, do this, and if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. So, he goes, the first thing he addresses is something that was a problem in first century Greco-Roman culture. Uh, many women who were coming to faith in Jesus, their husbands were still unbelievers. I mean, they were first century Christians, so they didn't grow up in church. There was no church to grow up in. They came to faith in Jesus, and they tried to get their husbands to, to, to join them in this faith. And, and many, many women were in this place of like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jesus follower, and my husband wants nothing to do with it. And maybe some of you right now watching online, you're, you're kind of in that same place. You're, you are a Christian, your spouse 
is not a believer. And so they have these questions, and you may have these questions, like, what do I do? How do I honor my spouse if they're not a believer in Jesus? How do I handle this? What is this supposed to look like? Should I get a divorce? Is it okay? What, all of these different questions are rolling around. And, and Peter addresses this first, and we'll, we'll look at it, verse 1, verse 1 and 2. He says this, wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So Peter's like reminding these first century wives, he's like, look, you may not be able to get your husband to love Jesus. And maybe you've tried. You're like, if you're in this situation, you're like, I have prayed for him. I try talking to him about this. I leave tracks on the toilet seat. You know what I mean? Like, I am hoping and praying, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm wanting my spouse to love Jesus like I love Jesus, and it's not working, and I'm not able to make them love Jesus. But Peter is like, look, I realize that you may be powerless in making somebody else love Jesus, but you are not without influence. He's like, you have extreme power in how you treat them and how you live your life in front of them. Like we said last week, people are watching you. Non-Christians watch your life. They could really care less about what you're doing here right now. They're not saying, oh, wow, oh, so holy there at church today, or they're watching online. Like, they're watching your life. They're wanting to see, is this just a Sunday thing that you do for an hour and 15 minutes, or is this something that actually makes a difference in the rest of your week or when, when it really gets hard. People are watching, and spouses watch. And they may be the first to be like, oh, is that how Christians act? Oh, okay, all right, I know, great. Is that how Christian speaks? Mm, okay, right? Because they're watching, and rightfully so, and rightfully so. He goes on, in, or she, yeah, he goes on in verse 3. He says this. <laughs> I love these. It just gets, he gets into it. Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. <laughs> Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I mean, this, this verse has been construed to even birth whole denominations that teach that women cannot cut their hair or wear makeup or have to make all their own clothing themselves, none of which can be form-fitting. Um, and so the question is, like, is Peter saying that you shouldn't brush your hair or wear jewelry? Maybe even brush your teeth or wear nice-looking clothes and you can't wear makeup? That's not what he's saying. There's this old saying. You'll get offended. There's this old saying, if the barn needs painting, paint it. You ever heard that? <laughs> look, there's this reality, and he's not denying that. He's like, look, he's not saying, like, don't do anything to make yourself look good. Just let it all go, right? <laughs> Just look haggard, punch your teeth out so nobody looks at you and would ever find you attractive. Like, he's not saying that. That is not at all what Peter's getting at. He's essentially getting to this heartbeat that's saying, like, that isn't where your beauty comes from. Like, that's fine. Like, paint the barn. Paint the, it's fine if you, like, it's fine to look good. It's fine to look presentable. Brush your hair and your teeth. That would look good too. But that isn't where your beauty comes from. So don't put your trust in that. It's not what wins you people. It's like the thing that you should really be making sure that you're putting your trust in is God. And that comes from the inside out, not the outside in. He says cultivate inner beauty. And there's another translation that says cultivate the inner person of the heart. Which I love, like because it's always about the heart. It's always about the heart. So like... You know, even me, like, you know, we prepare to leave the house, don't we? Many of you, like, you, you get up and you brush your teeth, wash your hair, you, you do your hair, you blow dry it, you put on makeup, you get dressed, you don't like that, and you put on another outfit. Nope, and then you put on another. Like, we get, we, we prepare ourselves to leave the house. Many of us would not leave the house the same way that we woke up. <laughs> 
right? You, you, know, it was like a, you just got like a cow lick the side of your face and your head's just, you know, your hair's just sticking up. Like, you're not going to walk out the door and be like, hey world, here I am, holy as all get out, right? Here I am, like, accept me, right? But, but the question I think that Peter's getting at is like, do you spend the same amount of time preparing your day spiritually? Because that takes work too. You're like, well, it takes work to look this good, right? It takes work to look that good spiritually. Uh, Many of us wouldn't want to subject people to our bad hair day, but how many times do we subject people to our bad attitudes? And just, oh, I've tamed this cowlick, but uh, you're going to deal with my wrath. He's saying, you know, are, are are you really pouring into that? Because outer beauty fades. The older I get, the more that I realize that any good-lookingness that I once had is just drooping. It's just true, or wrinkling. Like, it's like, what happened? Because outer beauty fades, and inner beauty gets better with age. Gets better with age. And Peter says to cultivate the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. These two things, gentle and quiet spirit. That, the, the, the most attractive thing, the, most, the dead sexy thing that you should cultivate is in your inner beauty. It, two things, gentleness and a quiet spirit. That word gentleness can also be translated as meekness, which means power under control. Power under control. It's kind of like peace under pressure. Peace under pressure. I, I'm, I'm prepared for the day that is ahead of me, and it's not probably going to look good, and there are going to be people, stupid people, that come around and try to blame me for things and mess up my day, but I have peace under pressure. Why? Because <laughs> my trust is in the Lord, and I'm centered on that and prepared for my day because of it. And he says a quiet spirit, which means tranquil, which means undisturbed. It means like you might try to rattle me and things might come at me, but I am tranquil and undisturbed in the midst of it, quiet in the middle of the storm. This is the thing that he's like, these are the things that will make you weird. These are the things that will set you apart and make you different. Proverbs 31.30 says this, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So, paint the barn, but don't put your hope in it. Don't put your identity in that. Your hope is not in your outward appearance. Your hope is in God. (laughs) I'll keep moving on. Verse 5. It doesn't get better. Verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted to their own husbands, Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and and called him her Lord. I tried to ask my wife if she would be like Sarah, the holy women of old, and call me her Lord. I didn't think it was much. She didn't go for it. She seemed to think it would go to my head, which I don't know why. Because I'm pretty, I'm pretty centered, you know what I mean? Like, it's not going to go to my head. You can call me my Lord all day long, and it's the least, the least you could do, right? I mean, like, she didn't go for it. She didn't think it was a good idea. Um, I have no idea why. I'm still trying to, to get her to do it um, today. Um, but here's the point. I think we can get sidetracked by this, by words like um, submission and my Lord talk, right? It isn't about like, oh, I wish he would call me my Lord so I can be like, yes, my lady, right? What, do you, what would you like for dinner? I would like um, hamburgers. Yes, my Lord. Right? I'm, that, that is not what Peter is getting at. He's not saying that you should all just call, call him your Lord and do whatever he wants, and, and that is exactly how you be uh, a good wife. It's not, that's not what he's saying. What is he trying to communicate? He is saying, do not give an inch to the horsemen of contempt in your marriage. And choose to build a marriage of honor. And it starts with how we speak to each other. And it's not about, my lord, yes, my lady. Oh, my lord, oh, my lady. That's not what he's getting at. He's just saying, you better understand the power of contempt and the power of honor in your life, in your marriage. And it begins at a very base level of how 
you speak to each other, not just my lord, my lady, my lord, my lady, but publicly as well. Publicly. How do you speak of your husband or your wife? Contempt expects the worst out of your spouse, but honor mines the gold. Honor mines the gold out of your spouse. Even with like kids, my kids are not perfect. Are you guys perfect? <laughs> Carter's like, no. Molly's like, mm-hmm. Um, my kids aren't perfect. So here's, here's the reality. Like we can choose as parents to just speak with contempt to our kids and, and address the, the bad attitude, the bad decision, or we can choose to mine the gold out of them and say, this is what I see in you. This is the identity that I see in you, and I affirm that in you, rather than trying to always focus on the things that you're doing or the bad decision that you be, may be making. This is who I see who you are. Contempt expects the worst out of people. Honor mines the gold out of them. Amen? All right. Now for husbands. Um, a verse and a threat. I love it. Verse 7. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. This word considerate um, can also be translated understanding. It means like, in other words, uh, study your wife in order to understand her. If you've been married for any length of time, you're like, I don't understand her. She cries. I don't know why. I say sorry. I don't even know why I say it. I just want her to stop crying. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I made her, I, I don't know what, I can't understand, right? And he's saying, study, live with understanding. Study your wife so that you understand her. And you're like, ha ha, okay. In other words, he's saying, like, you need to love your wife on her terms, not your own. Because when you love somebody on your terms, it doesn't always translate into love to the other person. There was, um, this was a source of frustration early on in, in, in our marriage and, and even like uh, it's a source of frustration even, even now. Um, there's, a, there's a book that we read um, early on in our marriage, I think it might have been even in our premarital counseling too, which was a, called The Five Love Languages. And um, you take this quiz, and it tells you which of these five love languages you most receive love. Like, that's the language that you receive love in. And there's five of them. So there's, um, there's words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, uh, quality time, and physical touch. Let me say them again. Words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, quality time, and physical touch. Now... One of my love languages is uh, acts of service. And so this is not really one of Katie's primary love languages. And so I would spend some time um, you know, doing things, cleaning the kitchen, doing an act of service for her, showing her my undying love for her, that my flame still burns bright, <laughs> right? She needed to know the depth of my love, right, for her as I clean the kitchen for her as an act of service to my lady, right? I mean, and um, she'd come home and I'd be like, hey, hey, you check that out? And she'd be like, hmm, yeah. I'd be like, what? Did you, did you not see her? Oh, oh, yeah, well, thanks, whatever. I'd be like, oh, and, you know, just stab me in the heart and twist it. Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I, you, you, you could have cared less. And it wasn't that she cared less. It's like, she's just like, yeah, I'd rather you just stop working and just spend time with me. <laughs> well, that's going to be difficult then because I want to do acts of service and you want quality time. So I just hang out with you? For how long? <laughs> until it's quality. That's why we do. That's why we do walk, walk, and talk, talk. You understand these things. We don't just walk, we walk, walk, which means quality walking. And we talk, we don't just talk, we talk, talk, which means quality talking. I've learned this over 20 years of marriage, that there's, there's these levels that I have to figure out um, and, uh, and, and, and learn to love her in the way that she receives love. And that can be, that can be difficult, so good luck with that. Um, 
So he says this, so husbands, in the same way, be considerate or understanding as you live with your wives. Like, try to live with understanding, study them. And then he continues, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. There it is. Women love hearing that passage. Don't you? Yes. Wow. Waving hankies around here. I see it. I see that hanky lady. Uh, I'm milady. Um, let me give you a little bit of background to the culture that Peter is writing to. In, in first century Greco-Roman culture, which is the people that are reading this and that he is writing this letter to, women had virtually no rights. Zero. They were seen as a possession to a man. Kids, even, were seen as a possession to the man. A man could divorce his wife for virtually anything, even like, you know, burning dinner. You're like, I'm out. Goodbye. Women had no such rights. There was no rights of, of any form or fashion that even were, were even comparable to the rights that a man had in that day. We live in a very different world today. Um, but I want you to understand that Peter is simply addressing the reality that these people were living in. That women were in many ways the weaker partner. They, they, they had nothing to leverage. Essentially, everything that was to be leveraged was, was on the man to do. But I want you to see something, that Peter is actually leveling the playing field here. Sometimes we get sidetracked by seeing words like submit and weaker partner and stuff like that. I mean, but he is essentially saying to husbands, she is your partner. This was radical in this day. What do you mean she's my partner? She's not the same as you, and that's a good thing because the world definitely doesn't need more of you, right? She's different, and she isn't a possession. She's your partner. Respect her. She makes you better. Even if you don't realize it, the rest of us do. <laughs> she makes you better. Thank you, my lady. She's like, preach, preach, preach. I told you, she wasn't in the first service. It went much better in the first service. He's saying, <laughs> he's saying, husbands, because you have been given power, influence, do not use that power and influence to dominate your wife. Use that power to bless and to serve her, not manipulate and control her. This is huge in this day. I mean, this was like, wait, what? He's like, in the same way that Christ used his power and his position and even his life and leveraged it for you, I want you to do that in your marriage. Essentially, a, a man's leadership, you know, we're like, oh, well, a man's the head of the house and stuff like that. He, he, here's the hard thing, okay? Sometimes we're like, I don't like that submit thing. I don't like the man being the head of the house. Man, ladies, what God calls men to have to do is to lay down their entire life and leverage everything that they have for the good of their wife. Now, I'm not saying that that's how many men live their, live their lives in their marriages, but if we're going to actually live like Christ did and gave up his, his life and his possession, his position and everything and leveraged it for you, and that's what he calls men to do, man, it is sobering. It's sobering on both sides. In other words, a man's leadership in a marriage is not a license to do what he wants to do. A man's leadership in marriage is empowerment to do what he ought to do. And many times, those are very different things. Very different things. That's the leadership that being the head of the household, God calls us to. 
And then he, he, I love how he ends in verse 7. He says this. I'm going to read this in a message paraphrase. He says, but in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. Men and women are so different. We have different, you know, even, even in a day where we want to say that everybody's non-binary, all of these things. Listen, men and women are so different. We have different gifts. We have different talents. We have different aptitudes. I thank God that my wife is different than me. God, what if I was married to myself? That would be a horrible thing. Like, we, we, we celebrate those differences, and we realize that we are on the same team, that she is not my opponent. I am not her coach. We're teammates. In fact, our marriage and the success of our marriage depends on our willingness to be able to work as a team. That's, that's the difficulty of, of this word that Peter has for us in marriage for both wives and, and, and for husbands. Why don't you stand with me? In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to receive communion together, and I want to pray with you about this, about this word. Um, so if you're here, you know, make sure you, you have your little, I don't know, individually packed thing. And then um, if you're at home, make sure you go run and get some saltines. One, one week we did saltines and water because that's all we had. So just grab whatever you've got to be able to do this. Um, Peter ends with a threat to husbands. We haven't gotten to that yet. He says this, treat your wives then as equals, and then he ends it. And many people just kind of blow over this and don't really grasp what he's saying. He says, so that your prayers don't run aground. Other translates, it says, so that your prayers are not hindered. It's like he's saying that if we focus on fighting for each other rather than with each other, then there is something that happens spiritually. It's essentially like how you treat your spouse affects your prayers, your prayer life. And honestly, I don't even think I understand that theologically speaking. I really don't. I mean, I read it, and I'm like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. But it's this reality that, that I think I've probably lived within, that when this isn't in unity, this is off. Uh, when, when unity in the body of Christ isn't flowing, then this just seems to be a, a ceiling rather than an open heaven. This thing that, that Peter is, is drilling home in us, that there's a connection between your connection to God and your connection to your spouse. And I would go so far as to say that Peter is making a correlation between your marriage and an open heaven in your life. And I think what Peter would say to you, to me, to us, he's like, even if you don't feel like working on your marriage, don't just do it for Pete's sake. Don't even just do it for God's sake. Do it for your sake. Do it for your sake. When you, when you come to this realization that when you dishonor your spouse, you're actually dishonoring yourself because you're a team. And when you choose to honor your spouse, you're actually honoring yourself. And there's some sort of spiritual ramification to that where God just does something that doesn't necessarily make sense, but does. So, as we take this, this bread today, I want to pray something over us. Whether you're here in person, um, in simulcast, or you're watching online, I believe that as we take communion today, that God is healing marriages this morning. I think that God is in the midst of, uh, <laughs> of turning some things upside down. I, I feel like, like people right now that are on the brink of calling it off, um, calling it quits, are deciding that just like the Bible says, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to choose to honor my spouse. And I don't really know what that looks like, but I, I refuse to let the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I refuse to allow contempt to be the last word in my marriage. 
And so Jesus, I pray right now that you would change marriages today and that it would come in the most unlikely way. That it wouldn't necessarily be changing the other person, that it would change us. <laughs> I mean, they're 90% of the problem, but, but Lord, I, I pray you would cause me to own my 10% like it's 100%. I refuse to allow the devourer of our souls to have his way in our marriages, in our families, in our culture. And we should have marriages that shine and cause people to want what we have. And so, Lord, I, I just claim that, especially in a day and age during COVID when, when, when marriages are literally falling apart and people are trying to file for divorce as quick as they can. Lord, I pray that that words like this would ring true in us. Lord, I thank you that you are more than enough. Paul wrote, and I receive, he says, I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. then in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's drink together Lord Jesus even more so than how we celebrate communion and do that in remembrance of you. God, I pray that we would live in constant remembrance of how you leveraged your position, your power, your authority, and your life for me, for us. I pray that it would, that same honor that you had for me, even when I didn't deserve it, you would cause me to do that in my own marriage, in my own job, in my own society. God, I pray that we would be weird, different, holy, set apart. That we wouldn't do like everybody else does. That Because if we want what other people have, then we're going to have to do what everyone else isn't doing. Jesus, we want a marriage that shines, that we enjoy. So God, I pray that you would begin to change marriages and that it would begin with me. That it would begin with you. Lord, we thank you that you change, break, make, and mold us. Lord, we submit our hearts, our lives to you as the ultimate authority. God, have your way, have your way, have your way, have your way. We trust you. We put our hope and our trust fully in you, Jesus. We worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you. I pray you have an amazing week. Take this word and apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.